Welcome to the inaugural episode of Black Ink Red Film, a podcast where we're going to be talking about how horror and sci-fi favorites have evolved from paper into movies and then onward into pop culture. The format of the series is going to be that your two hosts, I'm Stephen, and with me tonight is Stephen E. We're going to be talking about a book. We'll then talk about a movie adaptation of that book. And sometimes in some of the series, there's going to be more than one movie. So we'll pick the one that we feel best represents it. And then we'll close the podcast with how we feel that that movie and or novel have affected pop culture. So this is season one, episode one. And this season, we're going to be talking a little bit about Stephen King. So Stephen E., why don't you tell us about what we're going to be listening to this season? Well, first of all, I, I thank you for doing the intro. If I try to say inaugural after a couple of drinks, it's really going to sound bad. So I appreciate you taking the, the heavy lifting portion of this. So, okay. So Pet Cemetery, novel written in 1983, um, really caught on over the next few years. It's, um, well, for the record, it's probably my, f- my favorite Stephen King novel and arguably one of my very favorite horror novels, period. So for those not familiar with the novel, it essentially follows the Creed family, Lewis Creed, Rachel Creed, and their children, Ellie and Gage, who in classic horror tra- tradition, uh, move into a home that the wife was apparently completely unaware of, because that really happens, and despite the fact they have small children and a cat, move into a home right next to a very busy, unprotected rural highway, because nothing could go wrong there. Shortly after they move in, their cat gets run over by a truck, Lewis works with their their elderly and exposition-filled neighbor, Judd, who then directs them to the local pet cemetery, which at first glance is a a pretty innocuous little thing that children had set up over the last, I don't know, 80 years or so to bury their beloved pets. But wouldn't you know it, right beyond that, beyond some thorny bushes or or whatever you want to call it, thank you, the deadfall, is a more ominous cemetery that was apparently the classic Indian burial ground. Whereas legend has it, if you bury something there, it comes back. But, as we find out, not quite right. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much the essence of the story. So, let's talk a little bit about uh, the novel first. Um, Stephen E., what did you think of the novel? Well, like I said, it's probably my, um, it's right up there with The Exorcist, and maybe a couple of those is my favorite horror novel of all time. And you read it, and I remember at the time I read it thinking, wow, this would be a really compelling movie, but there's so many ways they could screw this up. The, the compelling thing about the, the novel is it, its exploration of the themes of death, of people having trouble coping with death. Yeah. People just flat out dealing with almost PTSD regarding tragic events that happen in their life around death, coping with current death, and then not being able to accept uh, it, it really hits on a lot of notes in terms of what people in their lives will deal with in terms of death, including things I like best is that, uh, the, you know, the, the daughter Ellie in the story, if I recall correctly, really, really struggles with the concept at her very young age in terms of why do people have to die? Why do we have to lose things? Why can't they come back? And then ultimately in the later part of the story, Lewis, the patriarch, really trying to play those things out almost in a childlike way. By my memory, there was four main characters. There was Lewis Creed. He was a doctor. There was Rachel, his wife. 
Ellie, their daughter, and then Judd, the friendly guy across the road. And they all did have very separate thoughts, impressions about death. Judd was Judd's a doctor. He's very much the pragmatist. He thinks, you know, it's a natural part of the human condition. His wife, Rachel, very fearful of it. She she is it's a topic to be avoided. And we get information later on about why she feels that way. Uh, Ellie is is very much concerned internally about her cat and how it might affect church, the cat. And then Judd, as we as we come to learn, he's got a moral flexibility with how death should be and that's the whole basis of the story about why he introduces lewis to the the pet cemetery or the micmac burial ground well he also cemetery sorry to interrupt, but well he also has his wife norma who um is that right yeah norma who is pivotal in his life and you know from the very early on she's a fairly fragile character whose death in the story is going to play a big part in why judd does certain things as well right so let's talk a little bit about what why, why is this book a classic? I would I would say without having any data at all to back this up, but I would say Who that needs data? Pet Cemetery is likely if you were to look at best of Stephen King list that it's almost certainly in the top 10, probably in the top 5 of his published works. So why do you think that is, Stephen? Well, I think first of all it's it's ex- it's very well paced. I mean, it really is, um, from my perspective, one of his, if not his best-paced novel. Um, so that, that's a big part of it. It really flows very well. It gets into it right away. There's a, a, a tremendous sense of dread through the whole novel, which yeah. I think really resonates with folks. And again, I think beneath beneath some of the the, the basic horror elements that happen, and there's, there's some pretty scary stuff that happens in the book, I think the central theme of people struggling to cope with death really resonates with people reading the book. If there's something, I think, even subliminally that 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 people latch onto with this book, and therefore I think that's been a big part of why it's, why it's really stuck with people, because it does have, it hits into some of our basic childhood fears and or anger and feelings about death and why, why we have to deal with death in our lives. Right, right. Actually, you know, speaking of this, so, um, you know, spoiler alerts, there's obviously going to be spoiler alerts. The other main character in this book we didn't talk about is poor Gage. What's going to happen to the young son, right? Well, you've got, you've got Gage. You also have Victor Pascal, the mm. jogger who gets run over, who plays a part, um, more actually, oddly more so in the movie than he does in the book, for better or worse. Yeah, I was going to bring that up when he got to the when we get to the movie versus right, book part right. of the show. Yeah, and you've also got well, of course, you have Sister Zelda, who's going to factor into the whole picture Absolutely. at some point as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. So the thing to me that makes this book interesting about a lot of the Stephen King works is one is just creepy, right? You were talking yeah. about the loss of a child, the dread. Uh, there's plenty of anecdotal stories, the colorful characters, the, the father-in-law, Pascal, as we talked about, mm-hmm. Judd himself, classic character. But what's interesting about this story to me is there is, uh, it, it, would, it would be hard to say that there was a protagonist and antagonist. I guess if you had to put that label, you know, Lewis is going to be your protagonist because he's the main character, but he starts making some pretty shitty decisions early on. Correct. And then you've got just the cemetery itself and the lure of the cemetery itself, which I assume is going to be the antagonist. But really, there's no triumph over adversity in this book. Um, Lewis starts making bad decisions, which keep escalating and escalating. And the book ends with 
quite a bit of despair, right? You know, quite quite a tremendous ending. I mean, it's a really creepy and appropriately creepy and necessary ending. Yeah, there. This is this is not follow. Uh, there's no triumph for any of the characters in this book. Well, I think if you were to if you were to subgenre this whole thing, you know, and at some point I'm going to create some kind of weird guide and Venn diagram to how many horror subgenres intersect. I would put if you if you for, put a gun to my head, I'd say I'd put this almost in like the haunted house subgenre mm. because you're right there is no there is no quote-unquote villain in the piece this is really a story about people in an unfamiliar and eerie surrounding which they don't know the whole truth about early on who then fall victim to self-inflicted wounds yeah you know it's interesting that you say haunted house because um spoiler alert for our listeners one of the next episodes is going to be the shining and there are similarities between the shining as the that the Overlook Hotel being the antagonist, right? Um, you know, Ellie herself has a touch of the Shining in her. She's able to see visions of Pascal. Yes. She starts having yes. a premonition that something bad's happening. Stephen um, King really hates real estate agents. I'm just sort of <laughs> guessing that somewhere. That's absolutely <laughs> true. Um, okay, so that's good. Anything else you want to say about the book before we talk a little bit about the film adaptation? Those who are fans of the book know that. A little bit of King's history around it, where he had written it, I guess had shelved it for a while. His wife pretty much talked him into publishing it, and um, he, to this day, he still maintains that it's his one book that really creeped him out more than anything else. So it was powerful enough that it even scared him as a writer. Yeah, well, I can see it. Yeah, it's a creepy piece of work. All right, so we're gonna um, talk a little bit about the movie now. Stephen. Tell us what you felt about the, uh, I think it's 1989 version. 1989. Yeah. I want to I want to go back to a quote that Stephen King had about when he finally came out and and talked about Kubrick's version of The Shining, where King had a quote something along the lines of it's it's similar to as if you see this this beautiful, well kept, nicely painted, shiny, vintage car sitting in a driveway and you go up and to it and there's no engine in it whatsoever. I think with Pet Cemetery, that same thing actually holds true. Mm. It, 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 to some degree, it's, a, it's not a terrible movie. It's almost, if anything, it's almost a guilty pleasure bubblegum sort of horror film that I think misses some great opportunities because everything I talked about made this, the novel great. The underlying themes of death and coping with death and whatever, I think really just don't come out effectively enough in the movie. And you can you almost feel some of them wanting to come out, but they're just not there. I, I would agree with you to some to some level. The so much of the book takes place in uh, Lewis's head. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. all that inner monologue, and you know how he feels about death, how he is feels that his wife is being just irresponsible in her attitudes towards it. You know, his his feelings towards. Uh, his his in-laws. I mean, they, you can touch on that in the film, and they do, but it really, so much of the narrative of the novel is coming through in his head that that really, it just doesn't happen on screen. So the visuals come out, you know, the visual of the Pet cemetery, the visual of the Micmac burial ground once they finally get up there. I think those are all superb. They're all very well done. Um, I have no problem with that at all. Yeah, the problem, I agree with you. And the funny thing about this, too, is that King had no one to blame but himself. And I don't know what he thinks. He may think it's a great film. I don't know. But King wrote this. This was his first screenplay adaptation. He, of course, was not real thrilled with some of the previous adaptations of his work, i.e. The Shining. 
Or is it E.G. The Shining? (laughs) Such as The Shining. (laughs) Y'all can figure that out yourselves. Anyway, so he wrote the screenplay himself from his own, adapted his own work, insisted that the the screenplay be followed rigorously, insisted also that it be shot in Maine, which is fine. It's interesting when you look at it and say, wow, these things didn't make it into the movie that were really good in the book. Well, that was really on King. Right, right. Um, At the same time, I, I agree with you. It's hard in, with with novels where so much is going on in the characters' minds. And this is, of course, what's one of the things that's inherently difficult about adapting psychological thrillers. But they still missed a lot of opportunities, and they still took some missteps that, by the end of the film, you never really felt much of it was explored. A lot of it felt Pet Cemetery to me, the movie. Okay, Pet Cemetery, the novel, felt like a really creepy and and thoughtful psychological thriller almost in the veins of a rosemary's baby actually i would put it in the same class as the exorcist right Right. as far as novels go the movie felt like it was creep show two or three uh yeah i could see it it just felt too bright for me it it wasn't you know it didn't i i think about like you you say the exorcist i think about like the cinematography of the exorcist or something like angel heart or something like that i just it it felt i don't know how it's just too crisp and too clean you know well, let's touch on that for a minute, because you make a great point. So, obviously, with King pretty much leaning on the creative process, forcing forcing the studio's hand in how it was going to be made, you were, you were therefore going to be restricting the director as well, in terms of what he, or in this case, she was able to do. Right. So, George Romero originally had his hand on it. Um, he bought it for ten grand. He and King were, were buddies, basically, speaking of Creepshow. But for whatever reason, the delays in production, Romero wound up going off and doing Monkey Shines. Mm. The film was then offered to Tom Savini, of course, this, the legendary special makeup effects artist who I think had just come off the Night of the Living Dead remake. I, I could be wrong, the Time Rise, who was a, a Romero protege. He turned it down for whatever reason. So it winds up in the hands of Mary Lambert, who had done one feature film, Siesta, and had done a ton of music videos, including, um, I think, famously... Madonna's Like a Prayer video, which oh, yeah. if you think about Pet Cemetery, it looks a lot like some of those videos that Mary Lambert did. And Mary Lambert, I think, was was a, was a brought on just because she, well, she was apparently friends with the Ramones, who, of course, Stephen King was a huge fan of, so two or three degrees of separation, I suspect that's how she wound up on the project, but, you know, her hands were tied, the studio didn't exactly throw, uh, you know, an A-level cast at her. With all due respect to the people in the film, including Fred Gwynn, Dale Midkiff, and Denise Crosby. So I think um, you had an inexperienced director saddled with a screenplay she could do, have no leverage with. And that's kind of what you... And you wind up with, like I said, it's it's basically a long episode of Creepshow. That, that, or Tales from the Crypt, right? Yeah. I will give, um, when I think about my favorite parts of this movie... Clearly, Fred Gwynn's characterization of Judd is probably, again, without data, I'm going to say there's two things that people remember about this film. One is Fred Gwynn's portrayal of Judd and his main accent and just how charming he is in that. And then the second thing, of course, is Sister Zelda. Correct. Yeah. that To me, those are the highlights of the film. And the low light of the film is really, uh, and, and you can't, this is not an actor thing because of uh, he was an infant child. I don't know who played Gage. We can look that up for you. Um, but it's even when he comes back from the dead and he's now terrorizing the family, he's just too cute, right? So, well, that's one of the one of the big problems I had with the book versus the movie, 
and I will probably get into that a little bit more. Yeah, but we'll talk about that in a bit. In the book, the Gage's Return is very creepy. Right. It's also somewhat play. It's very creepy, and he's misshapen because he literally got run over by a truck. Right. And because a huge element that was left out of the movie, which is the whole idea that, oh, look, the Wendigo, this Indian demon spirit, really is possessing that cemetery, and anything you bury in it, these evil spirits are waiting to get up inside those bodies when they come back. In the movie, it's basically, and, and in the book, when Gage comes back, he's talking, which he shouldn't be able to do, has knowledge, you know, and has some incredibly creepy and uh, very eerie dialogue. In the book, he comes, in the movie, he comes back as a Chucky doll. That's true, yeah. All right, well, let's, let's, let's actually get into that part of the show. Let's talk about the differences between the books and the movie. In my notes, there there were certain subtle differences. Uh, Judd's wife, Judd's wife has a minor role in the book, but she she does play an important part of the pacing of the book because she, well, spo- again, more spoilers. She's going to end up dying, and then Judd's going, or she has a heart attack. Judd saves her, mm-hmm. and then no, um, or, um, um, Lewis saves her. Lewis saves her, right. and now Judd feels like he owes Lewis something. So then we start getting into the motivation of like why Judd is going to say later on that he knows this thing is evil. He's got all the stories about the bad things that have come back, but he feels like, well, maybe the cat's going to be okay, right? My dog, when my dog came back, it was okay over time. But he knows that the things that come back after being buried at the Micmac burial ground are not right in the head. Right. Yeah. Right. By the way, you can't see me nodding my head on this show, can you? No. Okay. I agree with you. Right, right. So that's one of the, so um, his wife, the role that is like played by the maid in the movie, mm-hmm. how Pascal is handled, very different. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In in, uh, in in the movie, the Pascal character, for all of you who have seen the movie, to me, it's almost this American werewolf in London-like <laughs> recurring character where he keeps coming yeah. back, keep giving messages. Uh, in the book, he just has like one appearance and then he comes to... Lewis takes him out to the burial ground. That's where we get the dirty feet. He wakes right. up. Was yeah. that real or a dream moment? So he's, he has much more of a recurring character in the movie than he does in the book. So, Stephen, you just talked about some of the major differences. In my mind, the major difference of this book is the element of the Wendigo? Wendigo? How do we want Wendigo, to Wendigo, I believe. Wendigo. Any of our viewers, viewers, any of our <laughs> listeners, excuse me. Well, I'm watching us, but any of our listeners, if they want to chime in on my pronunciation of Wendigo, please feel free. Right. Yeah. We'll give you the email address at the end. <laughs> the movie, uh, watching the movie, they just make it sound like the Micmac burial ground, it worked flawlessly for a while, and then at some point the ground is sour. That's one of the other key taglines, you know, sometimes dead is better and the ground is sour. Right, yeah. Are the two repeated lines over and over. Or it was the other one, the soil of a man's heart is stonier, I think right. was the other line. Yeah, it. exactly. The The book makes it clear that there is a spirit that's actually inhabiting those woods and has for some time. And, mm-hmm. you know, the the people have known about this, starting with the Micmac Indians and then through the settlers of the town and all the way to the current day. Right. And then the next piece of that, which is the most startling difference is like you mentioned how these creatures how the the resurrected bodies come back yes they come back misshapen they come back with uh, malevolent intent but they also come back with evil knowledge from beyond the grave so there's a great scene in the novel 
where they start talking about the was it Eddie Bickman character? Uh, Timmy Bateman. Baterman. Timmy Bateman. Timmy Baterman. Timmy Baterman character, and he comes back, and Judd and three of his friends in flashback um, are are going to deal with that problem, and he knows uh, dirty knowledge about each one of the men that ones. Uh, a boozer one's been stealing from the till and then one mm-hmm. i think judd himself's been cheating on his wife there's been yeah there's a lot of it had to do with just infidelity and, and right just bad yeah stuff. and all of that's just totally left off right in the um in the movie movie version of the of the film how about you was there anything that stood out to you in the film one one of the funny things that <laughs> when i was when i watched the film versus the novel is i had literally forgotten that the little girl ellie was even in the movie at all Mm. she's a very prominent character in the book especially because she's really the voice of why does death have to happen daddy and all that i literally forgot she was even in the movie yeah she's her her presence seems just horribly downplayed and and borderline irrelevant right Uh, like you said the whole thing with judd's wife norma not being in the movie um i mean i I get it it's just like one less character you have to write dialogue for when paramount's saying 90 minutes yeah or else but she's important Uh, her lack of being in the movie creates one of the big plot holes for me which i think which you touched on which is you know we establish in both both the book and the movie that judd knows the history of this of this pet cemetery or the, the burial ground beyond and the dangers and things don't come back right, even if they are animals. And he knows all this. Yet in the movie, it says, like, um, "Oh yeah, let's take your cat up there and bury it." Yeah, it doesn't have the strong motivation. Right. Yeah, but, yeah, because in the book, it's Lewis helped save Norma. Right. And that, even though Jed, because Joe Jed feels he owes Lewis something, and because he knows how traumatic this cat is and how important Ellie I think in the book even sort of senses something's going to, she has her own little shining and senses something's going to go wrong right, with, right. with Church the cat so it makes Judd's actions and motivation make more sense for helping for helping um, Lewis in the book um, which is I think a pretty good gap the um, you know of course the Missy Dandridge character in the book is just basically a throwaway she's basically taking over some of what you know, she takes over Norma's death in the movie, more or less. Right. Really, that's pretty unimpactful, from what I recall. The whole absence of the Wendigo is so it's it's very very vaguely alluded to. In yeah, the there's like one scene. scene where they there you hear a howling of it Correct. or something. Yeah, yeah, but you could easily have just brushed that off as just spooky right. movie music noise. So the absence of of the Wendigo character or concept, I should say in the movie pre- creates a pretty important gap too because otherwise it's just night of the living dead yeah um and again the characters instead of coming back imbued with his evil spirit both timmy baderman and the flashback in the film and then gage and the lesser degree church they basically come back as zombies yeah, yeah. Um, homicidal zombies as if there's any other kind i guess yeah but um let's go with homicide trying and yeah the victor pascal thing is in uh, the movie i th- I, it's funny you bring up American Werewolf in London because this movie came out well after American Werewolf in London. I can picture Stephen King being a fan of that movie, and right. I almost wonder if that didn't resonate in his mind when he was writing the screenplay, thinking, "You know what? Maybe we need more Victor Pascal in here." Yeah, because if memory serves, he is deteriorating each time you see him a little bit more, similar to uh, the one character in American Werewolf, right? Not if he was, it wasn't nearly as dramatic. Because, because, oh, okay. yeah. Um, yeah. But well, the, well, the other thought too is what, and again, Stephen King could answer this way better than we are, but he's probably not going to be on our show. That's true. So we'll just yeah. have to answer for him. 
My guess is the Victor Pascal character was expanded in the movie because he's basically there to be the voice of vague warning and dread. So I'm thinking he was there to sort of indirectly fill in some blanks that, they, that he couldn't cover through the screenplay, through the things that we're talking about, which are in Lewis's head and whatnot. So he's almost, to some degree, like the Shakespearean choir or the, the narrator of sorts in his own way. Uh, or the conscience on, on Lewis's shoulder. So I think that it was fine for adding more of them in the movie under those circumstances. And I, I have a funny feeling the 2019 version will probably do the same thing. Yeah, we need to talk about that in a little yeah. bit. So um, uh, let's pause here and we're going to talk next about how we think this movie has affected pop culture or what is what memes has it spurred over time. All right, so what, if anything, resonates in current, um, whether it be memes, whether it be tropes, what what do you think, uh, how has this movie impacted pop culture or how has it impacted games? What 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 has Pet Cemetery contributed to the genre? Well, you literally can't think of a Pet Cemetery without thinking of Pet Cemetery. Well, there is the, that's, so, that I mean, is the that's, obvious that's one. That's the big thing. Right. Um, even if you've never read the book or seen the movie, you know... Pet Cemetery is Stephen King novel, and you immediately probably would not go to any pet cemetery in the middle of the night if you could avoid it. Right. So I, I think that's one thing. You know, the, the some of the iconic images, uh, Sister Zelda, who was again an interesting, a, a very powerful image in the film that has not really held up as well as people think, and frankly is a little bit of a cheat because I don't think her scenes really work as well in the overall narrative of the film. Yeah, we didn't talk about that. The Sister Zelda character and her death, her horrific death and her slow um, illness is what caused the wife character to have her phobia of death and all topics right. about it and whatnot. Yeah. So she, yeah. in the book, it's, it's uh, I mean, both book, in the book and the movie, there's a long diatribe about it, but um, it's... Yeah, and, and you could really make an argument that you could have left Sister Zelda out of the movie completely and not have lost anything from it other than, you know, some a couple cheap scares. Because, again, while her scenes are really, really creepy, especially back in 1989, they really are disruptive to a lot of the narrative. Yeah, it's, it, is, it is almost a, an insert. I mean, and, and I will, I'm going to defend Zelda because I think Zelda is one of the creepiest images. I, I yeah, yeah, I agree with that. watching this. Yeah. For the podcast, I, I still think she's just as creepy and startling today. But yeah, as, as part of a why is she there to move the plot point, it's like, well, we have to put her in there. She's Zelda, you yeah, know. And yeah, she's the backstory of Rachel's character. And we got some. I mean, we've got some iconic lines of sort which you touched on, like sometimes dead is better. Yeah. Although it was again, what's interesting about that is that um, in some ways the themes and elements of Pet Cemetery. And I'll talk about, I mean, Pet Cemetery, the collective media of book and movie, really bears some resemblance to a more modern Bride of Frankenstein right. in some regards, in terms of themes of overcoming death and, and this, that, and the other thing. And because, again, the, the line, sometimes dead is better, is in some ways kind of a riff on a couple of lines from Bride of Frankenstein when the monster says, made me from dead, I love dead, hate living, and then later he says, we belong dead. So, you know, because a lot of that movie was about not to get off on the Frankenstein podcast, but uh, a lot of that had to do with the monster's existential battle with death and his own being and whatever else. So in many ways, those are almost, you know, book in storylines in some regard. Yeah. 
Okay, so the other thing that um, I have in my notes that I think is, it, that's been contributed is the Ramones song itself, right? So <laughs> yeah, 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 the Pet Cemetery song by the Ramones. The Ramones they they have a, a strong theme through both the book and the movie, and it's nice to see that you know the song is held up well as a Ramones tune. Well, King was a huge fan of them, and I mean, there's I mean, especially in the the later later chapters. I mean, he actually you know Lewis has kind of um, some of the lyrics going on in his mind as he's contemplating digging his son up. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah. there's, there's a lot of the Ramones referenced in the novel. Right, right. Okay, so um, anything else you want to say about it? Any last thoughts on Pet Cemetery? One interesting, one thing I didn't realize was that, um, and yes, I did my research. I looked it up on Wikipedia like you did, but oh, yeah. um, apparently there was a BBC radio show. Oh. Uh, there was a six-part, half-hour-each miniseries, radio miniseries for Pet Cemetery. It would be kind of interesting to hear that. Yeah, one could get their hands on such a thing. Well, we all know. So we're recording this in early or mid January 2019, and Correct. so I believe in April we're going to get a, another uh, remake of Pet Cemetery. So we'll have to come to an update after we've seen that version of the show and see what they've done different or better or worse. Yeah, and I, you've seen all the trailers. I've, yeah, yes, and and you know I, I joked at one point that the trailer could have been called the insidious paranormal activity of the conjuring because it <laughs> sort of looks like a lot of these other films that have come out but i mean that's sort of how horror films are now there's some elements in the trailer that concern me a little bit but it is a trailer um i do like the casting well, i like the general casting i really like john lithgow being in there i yeah. think he's i think he, he brings has, class to everything well he does and i think he can um i mean as much as we all love fred gwynn as Judd, and I totally agree that was an iconic role in performance. He almost brought a little bit too much levity to certain scenes in that film that probably shouldn't have been that that light. I think Lithgow is going to be able to really bring the dread out yeah, in the character. Yeah, a little bit more um, and, we, and I think the latest trailer, we did first see the first glimpse of Zelda, the new quote-unquote improved Zelda, who in the brief glimpse we have her crawling along the floor, she looks like a Godzilla character in a nightgown, but we'll We'll see how that goes. So she's definitely back. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll save it for that show. Definitely yeah. want to save it for when we see it. But I suspect that in an age of CGI, that how Gage is represented in the creatures are going to be very different than the practical effects we saw in the oh, movie yeah. that we were just reviewing. Okay, so um, do we have any email to read? No, we do not, because this is our first episode. So if you want to write to us, we're at blackinkredfilm at gmail.com. Uh, send in your thoughts, your requests. Again, we're going to be doing our next book movie is The Shining. The I Shining. Believe. Yeah, as we continue down the Stephen King series. Needless to say, we could probably fill a few years of podcasts with Stephen King. <laughs> That's true, yeah. Yeah, we're gonna do we're gonna try to get out to the we're gonna try to get this podcast out monthly. You know, we all have day jobs and whatnot. Again, thanks for listening Not to our first episode. Boss, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and we'll talk to you next month as we talk about the Shining. Stay safe, folks. You've been listening to Black Ink Red Film with your hosts Stephen Newton and Stephen E. Payne. Music was created by Matthew Murdoch. Please send any comments, questions, or requests to blackinkredfilm at gmail.com. And you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you for listening.